Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the ESPN Footy Podcast. One of the handful or so of the last episodes we'll probably do for the year, but it is a massive episode that we've got coming for you. We've had two remarkable preliminary final results and we're going to dissect and analyze those. We've got a heap of Ask Champion data questions to get through as we enter the bye week ahead of the grand final on the 25th of September. Jake Michaels, uh, probably not the weekend we would have hoped for in terms of raw contests, but some storylines emerging all the same. Oh, two absolute cracker prelim finals. Can't remember two better games. <laughs> uh, it was just disappointing. Like everyone always looks forward to the prelims, not necessarily more than the grand final, but the prelims are always those games everyone, the fans love. They were just horrible. Both of them fell over five minutes into the third quarter. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, they weren't really much contests. So, but I guess the, the one takeaway is we've probably got the two best sides in the in the grand final and they got there, probably not how we expected it to, to happen, um, but they're there uh, regardless. And I think they were the two hungry teams in those in those prelims. And let's hope, let's hope we have a good contest um, in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, absolutely. Christian Jolly from Champion Data. Uh, you would have been watching the matches and through a statistician's eye. I mean, do you kind of get too wrapped up in the fact that it's there have been two blowouts when you're watching these games or do you just sort of focus and, and let it sort of sink in and and, uh, and and whatnot later on in the in the evening or the next day? Well, yeah, I actually did. Um, on Friday, I do one of the a different sort of role that we have at Champion Data, which is the commentary role. So we sort of feed um, the AFL app um afl.com you know the the score worm and live commentary for that so i was sort of analyzing melbourne geelong live on friday night and yeah that was obviously a blowout so you know i was all across trying to find you know records in finals and the most against geelong and the most by melbourne and all this sort of stuff and yeah walked in the office saturday to work work uh on capture for bulldogs port and just said this this better be the good prelim because last <laughs> night luckily i was doing a different sort of role so you'd you actually don't see much of the footy doing commentary because you just got your head buried in the in the numbers ticking away and trying to find, uh, especially you know when a game like that you're looking at more historical stuff than nothing you know it wasn't about how Geelong were going to come back or anything, uh, but yeah as you said hopefully you know the Bulldogs Port game has to be one good prelim a year. Hopefully yeah. we didn't get one, but yeah it was I, I sort of said and I made the call that I needed I wanted the Bulldogs to kick the first three or four too to make it interesting because I thought if Port start quick here Bulldogs will you know. Uh, fall away quite quickly and when they kicked three or four I thought oh, okay game on this will be a, this will we, be a yeah. final and yeah it just we yeah, spoke just about it on the podcast I, I actually said I, I could see it being a blowout in favor of Port um, <laughs> and that's I thought the same thing I thought if the Bulldogs can start well it's this is going to be a cracker and they just they just kept yeah. pulling away <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we jump into another episode fellas something quirky interesting uh, attention worthy from the weekend that we might otherwise have missed Jake well, you, we just said it. The games were pretty awful, so there wasn't much there to, to sort of pick out. But the thing that really uh, uh, piqued my interest was the NRL's announcement, well, not announcement, but the fixturing that they were going to schedule the Melbourne Storm prelim at the same time, not, the, not just the same day, the same time as the AFL Grand Final. I thought that has to be one of the the all-time fixturing screw ups and they've gone and backtracked now and they've they've um they've fixed it up i believe they've changed they have they changed the time it's it's earlier now so it's uh they're back to back now so you can watch the storm at around 4 p.m i think it is oh it would have been just 
it would have been horrible for for the Storm. I mean, they wouldn't, you know, the Storm's quite popular in in Melbourne. But but when the grand finals on, I mean, no one's watching anything else. So I think they made the right decision in the end. But bizarre that they yeah. actually went with that to begin with. Well, we didn't know what time the AFL grand final would be starting for many, many, many weeks, and the, we uh, the NRLs. But, we, but the the NRLs finals are. Like we know what time they're going to be for yeah. for some time, so I can kind of I can see the logic. I just don't understand why the Storm wouldn't be playing the Friday night if they're the number one seed. Yeah, I, but a also couple of odd things about we've that. known that it was we've known now that it's going to be a night grand final for a couple of weeks, right? Uh, the, the writing was on the wall, wasn't it? If it's going to be yeah. in Perth, they're there two hours behind to start with, so yeah. you get the evening but, but start I mean, over there, and I mean, it's the prime the, time the, here. Yeah, the confirmation. But anyway, I mean, it was just strange. Look, they've fixed it up now, so at least they've got... To be honest, at least they've got the guts to come out and say, look, we're, we made a mistake, let's fix it up. Yeah. Because um, had it been the AFL, who knows? The pride might have gotten in the way, and we thought, no, nah, you know what? We're not going to admit to making an error. But look, yeah. they have fixed it up, and yeah, it should be a good game. Now, everyone's saying, oh, we can't have our barbecues because it's a night grand final. Well, there you go. Watch the Storm game first. Have your barbecue get sloshed and then watch the grand final. <laughs> uh, Christian, <laughs> you back that up. Oh, it was similar to Jake. There wasn't much to notice over the weekend, but obviously, you know, what's already been spoken about. But um, yeah, I noticed something yesterday when it came down to uh, the Gary Ayres medal uh, voting or votes got released and just noticed, yeah, there's only two players in the running, Jack McRae, Bailey Smith, um, 25 and 17 votes. Clayton Oliver on 14, um, Max you can get in, in a game is 10. Yeah, so just basically, yeah, realise a Melbourne player can't win the Gary Ayres medal this week. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just basically, we, we sort of spoke about it, I think, previously on the pod. The voting is just too hard to do 5 four, three, two, one. The team that gets the extra games got, you know. Well, it's a huge advantage, isn't it? Yeah, the bonus it is the... votes. But to come down to the final week, I, I just sort of said to you guys, you know, Max Gorn could kick 10 this week and not <laughs> should, win. Should the grand um, final carry double weight? No, the the rule the the award just needs rethinking. It's like an afterthought because it it heavily favors a side that either loses in the first week of the qualifying finals or wins through to the elimination final and then gets through to the grand final. Mm. And you might not win the grand final and you can still just have tallied the most votes uh, having played the most games and win the Gary Ayers. Well, it's it's the most bizarre and strangest award in football to be honest because it doesn't it doesn't matter. You could be the best team smash aside in the first week, smash aside in the prelim and smash aside in the grand final, but you might not get enough votes because you haven't played enough games to win the, uh, the award. It, uh, it needs rethinking, well, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not the... I don't think it's the most prestigious award going around in football, but... Gary is... Oh, tell, Jack, tell, Jack, tell Jack McRae that he, um, that he hasn't earned his, <laughs> his award. I mean, that's the other thing. So he's what eight in front of Bailey Smith. So he Bailey Smith would have to... It's pretty much already won by McRae unless Smith is best on and McRae doesn't poll. And we, given McRae's consistency, he's yeah. bound to get a couple of votes at least. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of it. I mean, does, do people really, do people really not care? I like, but, I like the thought of it. I, I yeah, like the idea of it. It's agree. a big medal that if we can get it right and whether that's a 5-4-3-2-1 after the grand finals played and, you know, and then you vote collectively on the games that are played. I don't know. It's hard to do. Uh, but the voting system, the way it is, yeah, as we pointed out, just it clearly it doesn't work too well at the moment. Jake, you're smiling and laughing there. Anything to add? I was going to say, um, there's been discussions. Look, I'm not for it, but I know I've, I've heard people say that Brownlow voting should run all the way through to the grand final. No, but again, that's the Come same on. issue where 
you affect you know certain teams and players are favored by playing more games so yeah exactly right um yeah i don't know i i do like it i think it's they're taking a leaf out of the u.s book with finals mvps and all that best player in the finals which is good but it's different because it's much harder to yeah as you say we've said it ad nauseum but the the amount of games is the biggest issue if everyone plays the same amount of games then fine but yeah i don't think it's ever really going to work this way um, yeah, something from me, a bit, a bit of a personal sort of something I've noticed, uh, or something interesting that I've noticed over the last few years, actually, is uh, a good friend of mine. He's a Melbourne supporter, and he moved to Perth Neil? three years ago after the D's won that. Oh, sorry, lost in the prelim to to um, West Coast that year. The Jordan he, Lewis game, he was famous one, and he was he was really upset because he said, "Geez, just as the D's are getting good, I'm moving to Perth and might not ever be able to see them win a flag." And sometimes you just need a bit of luck in footy because they weren't very good the next year. They were okay the year after. And now they find themselves in a grand final and he's picked up tickets and will watch the D's in a grand final for the first time, I think, in his lifetime. I don't think he would have gone in the year 2000. So um, for a move that looks like it was a bit grim for a D supporter, he's ended up falling into some grand final tickets on all the best to, to, to Dan, Arthur, who's a good mate of mine in Perth. But... Good yeah, sometimes, there. yeah, for footy, just favours the the luck and the brave and all that sort of. Remember like, last year the guy and... that came from the guy that came from Brisbane down to Melbourne to watch, and he was keen to watch footy, and then all the games got moved up to Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it goes uh, both Lux, ways. Lux you can be it. you can be a bit stiff, but yeah, oh, that's that's a great story. Um, I know it's just weird thinking back. Obviously, everything that's happened in the last couple of years, but to think that we wouldn't have had grand finals it, um, at the MCG you would have been laughed at a couple of years ago and and now there's the opportunity. And I think looking back, Brisbane last year and and uh not so much free, I think, but certainly West Coast will probably look back at this these years and think, gee, not that West Coast knew throughout the whole year that the grand final was going to be there, but it's an opportunity that you're not ever going to get again, really, to, to play a grand final at in your home venue. But anyway, it should be a good game. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to that next week because we do have the bye week this week. So we'll be able to unpack the grand final, uh, all the stories, all the uh, matchups, all the sort of intricacies about that uh, next Tuesday. So make sure you tune in for that. And before we get into the main part of the pod as well, uh, look look out for a Brownlow special as well this week. Jake will be taking us through his copious amounts of notes uh, oh. with the help of uh, Christian and, and we'll be... We'll be making a few Brownlow predictions and uh, some interesting little tidbits and, and stuff like that. So uh, keep your eyes peeled Thursday uh, at some point and we'll get that out as well. All right. Well, there was probably one surprise result on the weekend, Jake, but two surprise margins, I think you can say. Uh, a lot went right for the two winners, uh, being Melbourne and the Bulldogs, but a lot went wrong for the losers. And they were two, it's kind of weird to say, but they were boring, but at the same time, very engrossing and interesting prelim finals. What... I guess if you had to pick one, what's the biggest shock that came out of this weekend for you? As in the game, I was the result I was more surprised with. Well, just the the moment, the performance, the game you're most surprised with. Like, just what what stood out to you as a bit of a shock? I was probably surprised Port were spanked. Yeah, because as I said, I thought um, I thought if anyone was going to win comfortably of the four teams, it was going to be Port. Having said that, I was probably most disappointed with. Geelong's effort in that in that um, game against Melbourne, it looked like this might be the most simplistic take you can you can come up with after these two games. But 
it, I think it's quite accurate. It just Melbourne just wanted to win that game a whole lot more than Geelong did. It just fa- and I'm not saying that that might not be true, but it, the way they played and the way it looked, that's how it felt. It meant more to Melbourne winning that game than it did to Geelong. That's that's what came through the TV. They they were hungrier, they were harder at the ball, they they were they just everything meant more and every every moment mattered more to Melbourne. And the and it, it reminded me of the um of the 2019 grand final, both prelims did actually the, they were never that far apart in terms of um, in terms of how they played, but it just, once the once the game's beyond doubt in the early in the third quarter, it's very easy for the margin to blow out. But getting back to your point, yeah, I think I was surprised Port was smashed. Um, but the biggest disappointment for me was Geelong and how they played. Um, and yet again, it's been another failed season for the cats. We've t- well, you talk about sort of the hunger and the desire that that two clubs showed, and, and how it was potentially hungrier, or, or you know, sort of they were more intense at the footy. We talked about momentum a few months ago, and how it's so it's it's a it's a it's a strange one because you can't measure it. You can't measure. Well, momentum. look at look at the Bulldogs' momentum in the last month heading into finals. I mean, it was awful. Many people, myself included, were saying that the that the Bombers are a big chance to beat them in the first week, and now they could be they're on the precipice of winning a grand final. But you can't measure hunger either. I think is the point I was, I was no. trying to make. Like it's you, it's just sort of one of those intangible things that, um, as you say, it, it might come through the TV to you, but you can't really put a finger on it. Yeah, I'm sure all 23 Geelong players wanted to win just as much, but it just didn't feel that way with the way it played out. Christian, we saw the demons really kick into gear. It was a bit of an arm wrestle to start. Um, and then they sort of found their feet. And the second quarter was relatively even for a bit. And then the third quarter was just uh, the Max Gorn show. Is there anything that sort of jumped out to you, at, which paints the picture of such a comprehensive victory? I mean, the thing that, that stood out to me was that the scores from stoppages that the Ds were just able to pile on early, set the tone for the match. And um, the Cats were spanked by 30 in contested possessions. I mean, is there anything else that sort of really jumps out to you? No, that was that exactly. You probably nailed it. And that's the scores from clearances was just unbelievable. So I sort of said to someone on the next day, if you had told me that Melbourne was going to score 24 points from turnovers in that final, you would have thought, geez, they're in trouble. They, you know, their games, you know, not their game, but, you know, a lot of the games built on turnovers and you're going to have to score more than 24 points in a prelim to win the final. To score 101 points from stoppages, 101 points, it's just, it's the third most ever recorded, most in a final by over 20 points or so. But it was just, it was, yeah, comprehensive. And it was once they won the clearance, I think they were negative four across the game for clearance count. And it was even or Geelong were in front most of the time. And it was similar for Geelong. It's a problem for them. Um, that's two finals now because the first week of finals, they were, I think they were 11 zip um, against the power from center clearances in the first half or, you know, early in the third quarter and hadn't scored from any of those clearances. So yeah, the, the actual battle and, you know, sort of what Jake's saying, cracking in and getting the ball first Geelong were doing that. Okay. They were only negative eight in contested possessions around the stoppages, won the clearances, but once it got out of there, just Melbourne waltzing out of it, six goals from center bounce clearances. Um, yeah. And as I said, 20, it was 21 scoring shots to four from clearances, but the clearance count was plus four in Geelong's favour. So I think that just summed up the game right there. They just, yeah, probably the hunger started it, but it's the way they were able to waltz down the field once winning the ball out of stoppage was unbelievable. Perhaps that gives off the, well, not the illusion, but but perhaps that's what paints the picture of hunger, Jake, is that mm. the quality of clearances for the Ds was just so much better and it looked like they were doing it with ease at times. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I haven't really dug deep into those stats, but it felt like, 
Dangerfield was probably probably the only Geelong player consistently that really did look like he was giving it everything 100%. There were just too many. And we spoke about this on the podcast. Was it last week or the week before about your bottom six players? And once again, you go look back at that stat sheet and it tells the story after the game. Um, you look at the stat sheet. You don't even need to see the score. You can look at the bottom six for each team and you can say... Melbourne's going to win. This. Melbourne won this game, and you're right. And it, 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 time and time again, and I think in finals, it's even more, um, it's even more profound. Even yeah, looking away from the bottom six, it's. I thought you know Joel Selwood and Clayton Oliver. He did he did quite well. Clayton Oliver didn't do much in the first half, but Jack Viney's had. I think he finished with 22 disposals, second most he's ever had in first half of footy. Viney, oh, in the first just, half, yeah, yeah, just sort of just stepped in for Oliver. So yeah, they shut down one, but another one steps up. So you talk about the bottom six, but I thought it was even just the way, uh, yeah, blokes, yeah, like Viney, obviously you know Petrarca was. It's usually Petrarca and Oliver. This this time it was Viney and Oliver. You know, Max Gorn doing what he did. Uh, Charlie Spargo sort of got around the ball. He had 18 disposals, eight marks. He's not usually a high, he doesn't find a lot of the ball, but he was sort of, you know, he was giving him that up, that option out of the stoppages, sort of the, you know, hit up player. But yeah, I just thought, yeah, a, a lot of, a lot of it, yeah, came down to when I was watching Jack Vine the first half, I just thought, man, we got too many options. You stopped one, you stopped probably their best player in Oliver, but now Viney's stepping up and doing the same thing. I think Viney's going to be very interesting. I know we're looking ahead early, but Viney's going to be a very important player on grand final day because he is so underrated now that he's had Oliver and Petrarca um, and Gorn, I guess too, in the, in the midfield area all surpass him. It wasn't that long ago that Viney was the best player on the team. Um, had the burden of Cassidy as well. Or 2017 where he was, he had a brilliant start to the season. He was in Brownlow contention as well. He was fantastic, but I, I think he proved that it's, he, it's the sort of game that he, would that he thrives in talk about some interesting stat lines christian and how um the the cats actually won the clearance count by four um melbourne only won the hit out stat by three but you could probably argue that max gorn was by far and away the most influential player on the ground jake and this comes a week after you said that the value of ruckman was declining uh i did (laughs) um had to get in that, that in there sorry i saw a couple of um a couple of little comments and my, directed at me for my for my call, but my hey, let me say this: it almost the fact that everyone's giving it to me for making that call almost proves my point. If he can go and have a great game like that, and everyone carries on like it's the greatest thing they've ever seen, it proves my point about Ruckman. Jack Darling kicked five in a quarter, and no one's no one talking about that. That was earlier this year. Yeah. I think it was against Gold Coast or something, but still, he did it. <laughs> Yes, but it, in saying that, he also didn't have 33 hitouts, 20 touches, and and six tackles no, and five look, clearances. No, in all so. seriousness, he was he was great. And not only did he not only did he kick um, five goals, he four of them were unbelievable. <laughs> oh, well, like he was a six foot player instead of a, a six foot eight player. Yeah, it was just unbelievable. Like any player, any and- player kick those four goals. Forget a ruckman doing it. Any player. I mean, that's what I was going to say. I mean. You talk about 33 hitouts, so yeah, that's you know a lot of opportunities to get handful of the ball. Seven hitouts to advantage, so that's not a big game by any stretch of the imagination. You know, you'd probably for you know a great game, it'd be up to 16, 17 hitouts to advantage. So it wasn't like it was just and we talk about again scores from clearances. It wasn't because of Max Gorn's clean ruck work. He just became an extra midfielder around the ground. Exactly, and that's what I've always plucking said. It out, plucking it out of the ruck, obviously, you know, didn't count as a hitout to kick that goal. So that was pure ruck work, but. 
I think a lot of it is just because it's good to have good players. doesn't matter how tall or short they are. If they're exactly. stars, they're his, stars. his goals, honestly, it reminded me of just a stretched version of Gary Ablett. Just the way he was sort of nimble, a oh couple God. of interesting snaps, one streaking away from the center center square. Like it was just, I could not believe that I was watching a man that tall with a beard like that, uh, doing things like that that he did. So um, kudos to Max and, and what a bloody performance that was. Jake, where to for the Cats? Uh, they were starved of an opportunity to play their style of footy. Um, the game plan looked pretty inflexible as, as it got away from them. Uh, we've we've harped on about their age and, and the way that they're going about things. I mean, where do you see them going now? And I guess, how do you rate their season? Well, I rate the season reasonably poorly. Um, if it's a pass-fail approach, it's obviously a fail. A letter grade, I'm I'm probably in the in a D to, to an F. I mean, it's... They were so close to winning the flag last year. They were the better team for two and a half quarters of the game. Lost the grand final. Um, and then topped up with three, let's say, A-grade players. Certainly A-plus A in Cameron and the other two. Yes, they're in the latter part of their career, but they're still both very good players that you can bring in. In Higgins and Smith. In Higgins and Smith. Um and they add those three players in and they still, and I'm look, I'm, I'm not someone who is the, the premier gets a, an A and everyone else gets a fail. Like not only one team can win it. So not a, 17 teams don't fail every year, but Geelong were the favorite in almost everyone's eyes after those three acquisitions, how they played last year. Um, and they just couldn't get it done. And I think the, the game style is just not holding up in September when it counts. And you once the pressure look, hits, you only have to look at Chris Scott. And I, and I know I bang on about coaches a bit, but you only have to look at the, the record. And it's not two or three games now. We've got a decade to look at of, of the same of the same pattern um, with Geelong in finals. And it's the same situation. You, so many people continue to write this team off and say, oh, I think this is it. And they continue to top up and top up. But you can only top up so much before the core, the, your core players of... Selwood and Hawkins and Dangerfield and all these guys that are that are there just fall off the cliff in terms of their age and their performance and they're the oldest team that's ever played. I, I yeah exactly on that. I give them probably yeah, a B minus or yeah I think I think I stick with a B minus. But any other club you'd almost give it a B plus an A minus season because it was a great season. It was top four finish. Um, you know they did everything right, but exactly that's what that's what we know of Geelong. So they haven't brought anything new to the table. Um, you know, they tinkered with the game plan a little bit, added a, added a little bit, still played similar game style, very, very safe, and it didn't hold up in finals. And then you just sort of run your name over who who got better for them. So I think Jack Henry, uh, you know, of, of the under sort of 25-year-olds, Jack Henry, uh, Brandon Parfit, Mark O'Connor got injured a bit. He looks like he could be a good run with player. Uh, Brad Close. And then I struggled to find anyone else. Did, did Grind Myers get better? Quinton Narkle, did he get better? Sam yeah. Simpson? who was sort of in the team two years ago. So to me, it is, it's, you've got to keep evolving as a club. And it feels like Geelong is getting to the stage where, okay, you, when does it wear out? You've, you've been great for 10 years, but yeah, there's, there's nothing new that they showed this year. Well, the, the way I can kind of picture it is you, you look like they're, they're train heading towards a cliff, you know, those old time movies sort of style. And they're <laughs> just, the they're only just <laughs> happening to like build new track in front of where the train is. Uh, to extend where to extend their 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 um their window, I suppose. But these veterans aren't going to get any better as they get older. I mean, Christian, I don't know if you guys keep any stats on like an average rating of or play, like a player ratings as you age. Like if if 
you know, people who are 27 are, are probably at the peak of their power, or if it's 30 or, or whatever the age is. But these guys are now, they're not going to get better. They'll be able to maintain it for a bit, but they're not going to get better. They're like, not going to, Geelong's not going to fall off a cliff next year or the year after, I don't believe. But they're not going to be in that top three teams challenging for a flag. I, I see Geelong having a slow fall down, down because they're, they're, they still do have enough decent players on the list. It's just, you can't. You can only top up so much. That's the problem. And Geelong's been topping up. And look, you got to give them credit because they've done it well. The amount of players they've been able to bring in from other clubs and and get, you know, it's it's you just like what it's like what Hawthorne were doing when they were winning their premierships. But the difference is and was Hawthorne won three premierships in a row. Geelong made a grand final last year and fell short. And again, I, I just feel like that was their moment. In fact, no, this, this year was their moment because people will look back and say last year was the moment because they made the grand final. This year was a better chance to do it than last year, even though they made the grand final last year. Uh, Christian, uh, do you get better as you age? Like where's the drop-off point, do you think? Uh, usually, I mean, I haven't looked in it for a few years, but there is a sort of the standard study case of especially looking at 18 to 20 year old, 21 year olds coming in the system, sixth year, sixth or seventh year is usually your peak year. Um, across so the 24, board. 25. Yeah. Age. Again, yeah. Depending on when you started. So, you know, that's not looking at a 26 year old coming in and picking in their thirty. but yeah, the guys are usually taken. Yeah. In their early twenties or from, you know, from their first draft year. Yeah. We sort of spoke about pre-pod that it's six or seventh year. A lot of these guys are approaching, you know, 10, 10 plus for a lot of them. Um, so you don't, you, there's no, you know, there's no magic number where you drop off a cliff. Um, you know, you know, if you looked at the numbers, you get better as you, you know, 39 year olds are still good. Cause Sean Burgoyne's the only one in that category. So there's not a lot around, but you're right. It's the six or seven year theory, usually where you're based. That's where your, your peak performance is going to come. All right. Uh, moving on to the second of the prelims, uh, the Saturday night one, the, the dogs set the tone early. And we talked about this in the pre-podcast media bit is that they probably needed to have a, have a strong start against port in order to make the game competitive. And well, they did more than that because they, they kicked seven of the first eight goals, silenced the crowd. Uh, and they had their prime movers involved from the first passage of play and, and just didn't let up. Like if you go back and like, I was rewatching the match and the, from the center bounce, it went Liberatore clearance to Bontempelli to McRae to Hunter to Bailey Smith. And they got a kick inside 50 and a stoppage. Uh, and, and at that second stoppage, it was, um, it was Liberatore getting his second clearance of the match within 45 seconds and Bailey Smith kicking a goal. It was just from there and it was relentless. It was just a, a magnificent performance mm. and and it shocked me. Christian, did it shock you? Like statistically, there must have been something that, that jumped out at you about the uh, about the dogs. Uh, yeah, I mean, going back to you, yeah, it definitely shocked me. Um, they were just, they were just on top everywhere like it wasn't like as I sort of said with Geelong they matched them at clearances and then got beaten on the outside port were just yeah beaten uh you know first quarter alone 15 to 6 from the clearances 48 25 contested possessions uh you know towards the end of the quarter I think they started to slow the ball down so they finished with more uncontested possessions port but I think across the first 10 15 minutes that was a one for me as well it just looked like Bulldogs had the option the, the short lateral 15 20 meter kick down the side and they, they'd use that and they just kept it the first three or four goals, I think there was a lot of little short, you know, sideways kicks involved. And it was that Port were pushing back into the back 50. And I think, you know, daring the Bulldogs to come at them and Bulldogs were just picking the best ways to go forward with it. Um, but yeah, sort of, again, post-match looking over at Port have had some of those losses this year. They've had a few five goal losses where, where they've just, 
and and it looked at Port. One of their strengths was they didn't they didn't hang their hat on anything too major. Like they weren't so far number one in contested ball or clearances of that 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 had to win that stat to win the game. They were pretty good at sort of evolving and sort of winning in different ways. But in few of their losses this year, they've just been beaten in you know the four main facets of the game quite easily and just dropped off from there. So. Jake, um, what does Port need to do to take that next step? We saw, you know, they were minor premier last year, lost in the prelims. They've lost in the prelims again this this season. Uh, they're close, but they're just not able to take that next step. They feel like the fourth or fifth best team in the league, third to fifth, and that's where they are. And that's what's, they're an honest side, Port. Yeah. They beat everyone below them, and they do struggle against the teams above them. And I think the, fan, the fans can't really ask for more than that, you know? <laughs> like... You, you, as a as a fan of a team, you you get frustrated when you lose to teams that you should be beating. Port's not doing that, but I think in order to take the next step, they need to provide Charlie Dixon with a little bit of support. I really like Mitch Georgiades. I think he's going to be a really really talented player. You can just tell he's just got that. He's got those footy smarts that we talk about. He's just a really good player, but he's only nineteen, and he's got a he, he's going to need a few more preseasons before he is consistent. And he's strong enough to be a really solid key position player. I just, I'm not sold on Todd Marshall. I've never been sold on Todd Marshall um, as being a a number two to to Charlie Dixon. I think they need, I think he needs a chop out. I think Dixon struggles. He gets hot and cold. We know he can be great, um, but we don't see it enough. And I think a bit of support for Dixon means that not only do they have two options, but it allows Dixon to not get double teamed and to, to actually contribute more often. Um, a little bit of midfield help probably won't go astray either. I'm with you in their forward line. I mean, yeah, I love Mitch Georgiatis. I'm a big fan of him. And, you know, I think he's going to be a star for him for 10, 15 years. And Dixon's going all right. But I'd go more, I think they more need a medium player. I think we, we didn't see their forward line at full strength. I mean, you know, they, they prefer the three tools, Marshall, Dixon, Georgiatis when they can. Um, then probably your main ones down there, Rosie, Robbie Gray, Butters. I know they like to use on the wing, but he can probably go there for a little bit. Motlop sort of played there a little bit this year. Fantasious. Fanta- I mean, yeah. Out of the park. But I, I feel like they, there's, there's only a certain few players like it, but the, the Will Haywood, um, you know, dare yeah. I say someone like Tom Lynch from Adelaide, maybe he's, you know, again, he's past that six or seven year mark, but that, that sort of size and that sort of high, I feel like that's the size of play they're missing in their forward line. Isn't that a Georgiades height? No, I think it's. I'm talking, yeah, maybe more Bailey Fritch, Will Haywood, sort of, yeah, yeah. get up 185, can maybe a little bit of ground level, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if they need to go find another power one. Um, and I don't, you know, they found Fantasia to add to the ground level. I think they just need that little in in between. It would, yeah. Does Does Robbie yeah, Gray need to spend more time power. in the in the midfield now? I mean, it's it's almost <laughs> like the the boke situation where they, they put him forward and they put him back in the midfield to great effect. Do you do you put Wines, Boke and Gray in the midfield with Drew um, now that you've got Fantasia and, and Rosie um, some of these guys that can play in the in the forward line? It's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because what I we've done a roundtable question on this about sort of what Port needs to add. And, and my first thought was they just need a bit of pizzazz in the midfield. Like they've got the grunt work. They've got the, you know, the hard-nosed Ollie Wines, Boke, um, Willem Drew, these kind of guys that can really go in there. But they don't have, I don't want to say flashy, but like someone who can kind of make things happen, like a, a Bonson Pelly, um, 
someone who, who's, who's got a bit Every of flair. Every club would love a Bonds of Pally. No, I know, I know, I know, but the, the sort of player that I'm talking about that has a bit of flair and a bit of outside nouse and a bit of, I, I don't know. It's, it's well, that's why I think, think someone like Gray does butters. provide that. Yeah. I think but, it's Butters once Butters gets a full season. Yeah, yeah and he had injuries this season. And, and it was a bit unlucky. As well. So they, they, they did. They, they probably didn't get to play with their best 22, um, you know, which no club does, but, you know, they probably did have a few patches where they had, yeah, had to... um miss a few key components of their side. But yeah, Dersma, Butters, Rosie, I think they've got that in the midfield. Don't forget about Amon as well. I know he plays more on the wing, but he goes into the middle for quite a lot of bounces too. And he's had a great year. I mean, he's been probably Port's third best player behind uh, Wines and Boak. He's had a phenomenal year, Carl Amon. He's really elevated himself to become a real top tier player. And I think he, he, he provides a little bit of that leg speed as well. Yep. And I think that's why they put him into those center bounces because um, Wines, as good as Wines is, he's not, a, he's not fast. I mean, Trav Boak is, is older. He's not overly quick either. And neither is Willem Drew. So I think they need a bit of that leg speed. Maybe someone like Dan Houston needs to, needs to, there was a period where it looked like he could be a really solid midfielder. I don't know. I think, I, I think they're just a, a midfielder short. And, a, and a, that whether it's a key position or, or maybe you're right, Christian, a medium-sized forward, they're probably those two away. And they don't need A-plus players in there. If they can just get solid Bs in both, I think they can the, – their, their, their defense is really strong. I mean, there's enough talent there. They're probably just lacking in a couple of those little areas. But I don't see – I think they'll be at another – I think they'll be fighting for a top four or five again. Well, uh, I was sort of shocked, I guess, to see that there was rumblings that that Ken Hinckley might come under the microscope. Surely he's safe for the foreseeable future, given what he's been able to do with what he has on the. We bar. had him as an untouchable a few weeks ago, I think. It's, it's, it's quickly, funny how it? it's funny how it works. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that'd be he'd be very unlucky if he was under any kind of pressure. I think um, two years ago, if you said to Port fans and the footy public. Portal win a minor premiership and make back-to-back prelims. I mean, Port fans would have taken that. And also the footy public probably wouldn't have expected that to happen. In fact, definitely wouldn't have expected that. I certainly wouldn't have. So I think he deserves quite a lot of credit. Um, and as I said before, they're an honest side. It's not like they're, they're losing games they shouldn't lose. I don't think Ken Hinckley should be under the microscope at all. Uh, in a word, what's your rating given Port's ups and downs, trials and tribulations this season? Um, like a letter, letter yeah. grade. Uh, I would give Port a B plus. Good year. Really yeah. good year. I think just, I agree. Just short of an A minus, I reckon. Christian? Yeah, I agree with Jake. I think yeah. their second half of the year, they turned it all around. The first half, they were you know, a little bit shaky, but yeah. Cool. Good, good season overall. They'd uh, probably get an A minus if they don't get flogged by the top <laughs> Um, last week we put the call out uh, for Ask Champion Data questions so basically you guys can use the hashtag Ask Champion Data or uh, tweet us at Footy Tips on Twitter and we would get the questions to Christian he'd be able to take us through the ins and outs of some certain stats, definitions uh, all that sort of stuff so we've had a a few questions come through that we're going to go through now might as well get stuck straight into it Uh, this is from Chouch on Twitter there seems to be a focus from clubs recently on getting deep inside 50s E.g. Port seems to focus on this tactically. Has Champion Data considered rating inside 50s in terms of depth, depth, say having deep and shallow categories? Inside 25s? (laughs) I like this. 
we we do and we've had it for a while so i think um one of the standard sort of measurements we've used and i think it's been around probably um pre-2010 at least is yeah for we sort of use far and near for our launch zone so where you're kicking inside 50 from um and then, again this is just your kicks inside 50 and then we got yeah sort of your deep entries and your shallow entries and we've used 35 meters as the cutoff so inside 35 is uh, considered a deep entry and outside of the 30, you know, between 35 to the 50 meter mark is considered a shallow entry based on, um, yeah, where, where the, a kick coming from the midfield lands in the forward 50. So yeah, running, running the numbers, you can sort of see why, um, you know, teams are sort of looking for the deep entry. So looking, if you, if you land the ball, you know, deep, closer to goal, you retain possession 45% of the time. If you go shallow, 47% of the time. So if you go for the shorter kick inside 50, you're more likely to retain possession. Uh, but scoring a goal from those kicks, if you go deep, it's 20%. If you go shallow, it's 15.7%. So again, if you're going deeper, you, you're less chance of retaining. It's similar to the hit out, uh, ruck hard ball, get what we're saying last week that, you know, it's sort of... Um, you got to back yourself. If you go deeper, you might you're slightly less chance of retaining possession of the ball. But you, if you do win possession of the ball, you're more likely, you know, five percent more likely to kick a goal from a, a deep entry compared to a shallow entry. But it's also what the coaches are big on is looking at the other way. So if, if we do turn the ball over, um, so on a shallow entry, um, teams are turning the ball over forty four percent of the time. So that's landing between thirty five to fifty meters. So forty four percent of your kicks actually go to the opposition, whereas forty one percent of your deep entry kicks to go to the opposition. So a lot more of those are probably spoiled out of bounds, yep. um, you know, or you know, win, you win possession yourself or goes to a stoppage. So um, the opposition, yes, more likely to pick off the shallow entries. Scoring from those pickoffs as well, 11% from a shallow entry, 8.5% from a deep entry. So it might seem not seem like massive numbers, but as a coach, when you see those, and again, these numbers have been around for a while, Coaches have been yeah, obsessed with not turning the ball over on a shallow entry because, you know, 11% of the time that we turn it over, we're going to get punished with the score the other way. Yeah. Um, I guess there's so much of the ground to, if you're, if you're from between a sort of 35 and 50 meter, there's a lot more of the ground you can, yeah, got, like if you pick the ball off and, you, and you're you, running you know, from half back. Yeah. You look at those two numbers of if I go shallow, I'm going to score a goal 16% of the time, or I'm going to get punished with a score 11% of the time. So yeah. it's, it's pretty close together where if I go deep, I'm going to score a goal 20.4% of the time. If the opposition gets the ball, they're going to go down the other end and score eight and a half percent of the time. So I've got more of an equity rating to do the deep entries. But again, that all comes with you can't you can't be predictable. You can't do that hundred times per game. Yeah. So it's about it's about decision making. Um, but Picking again, the moments. And stuff. Yeah, the coaches would be big on if you've got a decision to make. Um, the deep entry is always the decision you'd lean on first. So, in terms of these stats being available to the public, is it up to say the AFL's stats team as to what they show the public? Because obviously, you guys have recorded this sort of stuff, but it's hard to come across. Yeah, again, that's yeah, it's just the platforms that sort of house. Our data, uh, yeah, it's probably interesting when you look at it, but it'd be hard to show this in a table. Again, it's not a player stat, which a lot of the, you know, a lot of the Herald Sun, they want a, a player table that leads to uh, team totals and things like that. So, again, um, yeah, it's sort of that balance of we're, we're servicing the clubs and trying to provide them all the, you know, enriched data they need to win games, and this is something that helps them. Whereas, yeah, it's sort of the data's available to sort of, you know, the, the retail or the public, if you like, for people that want to, you know, buy it and how's it ever they're worth, probably just this this sort of stat probably doesn't sort of fit just, in. Just put it on Champion Data's website like for all so, of us to see. Yeah, correct. Well, so, I was going to say, maybe we could get it on ESPN's uh, game page. Maybe yeah, we should. We're, yeah, we're looking at, um, you know, as I said, 
that's our standard report inside 35 metres. The clubs do get XY coordinates um, yep. from all of our entries. So they could build their own sort of metrics to have, they might have 25 being their deep entry yep. and uh, anything below four, you know, 40 to 50 might be a shallow entry. So they might use, like they've got the power to use different sort of metrics. Uh, but again, this, as I said, when this stat was sort of created, that's the, the line we use. We sort of use, um, as I said, far and near kicks as well. So kicking it from within 70 metres of goal into your forward 50 or from kicking it, you know, from further out from 70. And again, if you're closer to the 50, you're more likely to retain possession when you kick it inside than if you're bombing it in from half back. Um, but again, if you do retain possession from those long kicks inside 50, you're going to score more because your forward line's probably going to be a bit more open with those those long launches. But yeah, it's um, interesting. As I said, the stat, the, the, I saw that question come through and I thought it, it's probably been topical too because a lot of the clubs have been playing around with that sort of data and deep entries and inside, like how deep do we get an inside 50 from a center bounce clearance and things like that. And, you know, um, how deep does the opposition get it in when they go inside? So it is, it's all about that uh, the shallow, deep and, you know, launch zones and things like that. The clubs are talking. Might need to hit up your club uh, to see if you want to see those stats. Unfortunately, uh, a few questions we've had on free kicks, um, some interesting free kick questions. <laughs> uh the first every one every time we do these ask champion every question seems to be around free kicks <laughs> um the first one comes from jason on twitter it says how many bull sorry how many goals do the bulldogs score from free kicks compared to other teams and which team kicks the most goals directly from free kicks uh yeah so the bulldogs didn't get a better actual number, but they were, I think they were 11th for percentage of goals from free kicks. So there was sort of nothing in that. Carlton, actually, who I don't know where they ranked for total goals, but they kicked the most goals from free kicks across the season with 45. So interesting. Uh, and Brisbane, Brisbane were second with 42. Um, Melbourne and Port were next with 40. Uh, that's just, yeah, just looking at the home and away rounds as well. So sort of um, not clouding the numbers, final numbers. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and then Bulldogs were, yeah. Uh, equal next with 36. So they were 11 for, um, yeah, percentage of goals from free kicks, but, you know, because they kicked high high amounts of goals, 36 of their goals came from free kicks, which was fifth or something. So I feel like, yeah, uh, who was that from? Jason might have had a sort of um, the answer already in his mind. But, yeah, so that sort of, yeah, again, every, every question leads me down a rabbit hole, but I just looked at percentage of goals overall from free kicks. Um, it was up to 13.4% this year. So 13% of the competition's goals came from a free kick. Last year was 12.3%. Um, but we had we'd seen a steady rise at 2014. We we're down at 9.6%. Um, five years prior, around about 10%. But we're up to 13% this year. And as I said, from... 2008 to 2013, West Coast were the number one side, uh, scored 13% of their goals from free kicks. So that's now the comp average. So it probably is creeping into a little bit more in the game. Yeah, the that's interesting. A few more goals from free kicks per game. I haven't. Maybe that's why it's noticeable to, to people is that they're seeing more goals come directly from free kicks. Yeah. Uh, whereas it's just the, the comp average that's kind of been creeping up. It's not just one particular club or, yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, and as you said, there, there was a lot of questions of, of free kicks that came through. So I've looked <laughs> at a fair few numbers from that, but I haven't like yeah exactly looked into the types of free kicks that are leading to goals, but it'd be interesting to see. Yeah. You, you do hear the comment too. It's, it's harder to be a defender these days. And it, it does seem watching it that, you know, it's harder not to infringe as a defender from, and as a Carlton supporter watching Steven Silvani, what he got away with yeah. growing up, which I was wrapped with. You, you clearly can't do that anymore. So um, one from Dara on Twitter, is there any data which can point to why some teams might get more free kicks? I guess, is there any sort of correlations between certain stats and getting more free kicks? 
Yeah, again, so, yeah, I would have thought, again, just, you know, hypothesis, if you want to use it that way, that, yeah, probably contested possession teams would be more likely to sort of come high up in the free kick count. But more I looked into it, not really. So if you're sort of, you know, looking at tipping the free kick counts rather than, you know, the margin count and using, you know, previous stats. So if you're looking at a head-to-head, you know, two teams, so Melbourne Bulldogs playing in the grand final this week, if you're looking at which team has the better contested possession record and trying to, you know, predict who's going to win the free kick count, 48% of the time the team with the better contested possession count ends up winning the free kick count in a game. So that sort of doesn't stack up there. The one thing that sort of, you know, does come into play, even though there's only 20 free kicks per team per game, usually around that, most free kicks are counted as contested possession. So you, you're trying to win, you got your head over the ball and you get hit high. Instead of getting a hard ball get, you won a free four instead. So using that number of 48% of, you know, winning contested possessions, you, you win, win the free kick count in that game. Um, I've even looked at it if you take out free kicks from a contested possession count. So you just look at the teams that have been winning more contested possessions going into a game. They win the free kick count 47% of the time. So it went backwards on me. Uh, so I just went, all right, screw it. I just want to know if I'm already in front of the free kick count going into a game, do I win the free kick count against the other team? 48% of the time I do. So there is, there's no, you know, uh, you, there is no sort of correlation that you can go on a streak of just winning for, you know, the team that usually wins the free kick count doesn't always win the next game's free kick count, if that makes sense. But there is, if you, if you run the numbers, even just for this year, um, Bulldogs were plus 72 for free kicks. So I think that goes back to Jason again, talking about the goals they got from free kicks. Um, it was more about their free kick differential. So they were plus 72, which was the best differential this year. Plus 29 was the next best. And again, this is only home and away round. So oh, 72 and then 29. Correct. was the next best. So there was 14 games this year. For the wasn't, it this, wasn't it very similar in their 2016 premiership year where it was something, something like that as well, where they seemed to be miles out in front in, in... Swans fans would be uh, uh, more than happy to tell you about what happened in the actual grand final too. <laughs> so yeah, well, actually, I just missed their pre- premiership year, so I went back to 2017 and 20 because yeah, it did see something with the Bulldogs. And they're plus 302 for free kick differential in that time. Uh, Collingwood a plus 301 second, so very close second. North a third at plus 197, I think they were. So Collingwood Bulldogs fair way up on top. Sort of run a quick eye over those two teams. Number one and two for disposals in that time. Um, so, again, they, they just had more of the ball than you know than most teams do anyway. So, they were high up on, on the count. But in that time, 2017 to 21, you know, clearly who's been the best team in that time? And it's Richmond. Um, negative 364 free kick count. Next worst team, right. what? 112. <laughs> So, so hold yeah. on. There's a difference there. There's a there's a plus minus difference of about 600 over the course of four seasons. 666. Sorry, oh, five seasons. Yeah, but there's also the difference of you know three premierships to zero. So you can't say <laughs> that, you know free kick count to, to look at that and to hang your hang you know Richmond hang their hat on it and say you know well that's unbelievable. That clearly didn't matter to them. GWS was second um, second worst as I said negative two twelve. So Richmond were a long way last as well, but. It was sort of, yeah, you could sort of see it with Richmond's game style, the way they played. They, they didn't have a big focus on clearances and contested possessions and trying to sort of be first to the ball. That's true. They spoke about it a lot of times on the pod. They, they lost the disposal count almost more often than they won it across their premiership years. They were happy to sort of give you a lot of the ball and let you be first to it, and they just beat you on the outside. They were just almost second to the ball once we got the ball. Um, 
taking those meters with handballs, um, being able to get away from the opposition to space. So sort of avoid, you know, having too much contact and winning free kicks while they're in possession. Um, and it was sort of the game style that stacked up for him. So again, which, you know, that, that led me to just look at, okay, how, how important is the free kick count to a margin in the game? And I don't know if any of the questions exactly asked that, um, from the list, but I sort of got a vibe of, yeah, everyone was sort of, you know, feeling that free kicks was such a big part of the game. Uh, win the free kick count, win the game 52% of the time. So, okay. So just slightly better than a flip of the coin. Yeah. And average, your margin's 3.6 better than your opposition. So you, you win by about four points per game. Win the free kick count by five or more in a game, 54% of matches. So again, only slightly up, not really too much. And an average margin of seven points per game in those wins. So you're about seven points off for five free kicks one. Um Free kick differential of 10 plus, which has happened 481 times since 2000. So, um, you know, what's that about five, uh, yeah, 10 or so times per year? Um, it's, yeah, 57% win rate for that um, and a 10 point margin. So, again, even. It's still not outrageous. Yeah, even mm, yeah. when you the free kicks by 10, you're sort of 10 points better off on the scoreboard compared to the opposition. So, mm. um, again, I don't have all the other stats in front of me, but contested possessions. Um, Fans would make out. You win the you bigger. win the free kick count by one and you win well, 99% it, of the time. <laughs> it's one of my biggest bugbears, you know, especially driving around. <laughs> I listen to a lot of, you know, SEN or talk back. Or, you do end up on social media. And I am always surprised at the, the free kick count, how often the free kick count is quoted. And, and I don't have access to it, and I'm not 100% sure the umpires still have it, but they have. They used to do warranted, unwarranted, and missed. Um, and I, I don't know if they still have the same reporting system, but I, I feel like no one can comment on the free kick count until you see those numbers. That's yeah. the only time a, a fan could only whinge if they got their hands on that number and said they missed six free kicks. But... <laughs> Umpires are making much more good calls than they are making bad calls every week, Jake. Absolutely. We spoke about this before we started. I mean, no one focuses on the great call. Oh, look at this. The umpire called this holding the ball. What a great call that was. Well done. Well, if the umpires are getting the... the umpire, put it this way. The umpires are getting getting it right more often than the play, players are getting it right. I mean, I imagine that umpiring... The umpires are getting it right more than 70% of the time. Um disposal efficiencies in the 60s shots at goal is in the bloody 40s at the moment isn't it yeah we're gonna get Don't to blame that. the umpires blame your shot, players split shots are at 52 percent, and i would yeah think umpiring decision making is a lot higher you know the focus on umpires from the fans and their mistakes it's like they are making minimal mistakes compared to the players you're actually you know cheering along but the other one that gets me and commentators are a big part of it is gee the umpire you know hot on the whistle tonight no, maybe the players are just giving away a lot more free kicks than usual. Like they, they don't just decide all of a sudden to blow the whistle. They're, they're just officiating what's in front of them. Uh, one from Jason Kaiser in our office. Good man. Uh, what stat was once more important or prominent, but has sort of faded away in the last five to 10 years? Yeah. Mm. So I used five. I found the five years sort of an interesting one. Cause again, you can look back keep, and again, Unfortunately, champion data only goes back to 2000. So we're missing, you know, the first um, hundred or so years of football. But again, five years was just an interesting enough time to see, yeah, how much has the game changed? And the more I look into this, the more it sort of stacks up with Geelong's theme of home and away versus finals, because I think the numbers, the numbers point to chaos going up um, and controlness going down. So going to the other scale. So what's that, you know, are you less likely to win now than you were five years ago? Um, if you win that stat. So disposal efficiency, 2016, 
have a better disposal efficiency than your opposition, wins 75% of the time. Uh, dropped every year since, down to 65% this year. So Is that a correlation with pressure going up? Um, no, so this isn't, that, this isn't your disposal efficiency number. This is just you winning that count. So again, right. if, you, if you've got a better, if you're using the ball better than your opposition, you used to win 75% of the games. You're now only winning 65% of the games. And it's sort of what a big okay. part of what Geelong were talking about. They, they love the controlled game in home and away. It didn't stack up for them when it becomes a bit more chaotic in finals. So to me, that was, you know, a couple little quirky ones. Running bounces have dropped as well. A team that has more running bounces only wins 51% of games compared to 51%. <laughs> um, a stat that's not quoted often, but a gather. So it's not a mark or a handball receive. So the ball's been kicked to you and it's bounced or it's been tapped onto you and you've grabbed it. So grabbing that possession in space, that's gone from 70% to 60, 60% as well. So How does that, that differ running... from a ground ball get? Correct. Well, that's at the other end of the scale. So that's also saying that even though they're sort of quirky stats, the gather, it's clearly clean passes being passed to you. That, that The importance of those are slightly going down. Disposal efficiency going down. Running bounces, being able to explode into space, not as important as it was five years ago um, going by these numbers. Whereas you flip it around, the most important stat, or the, you know, the biggest swing now is the ground ball get post clearance. So again, ground ball get by itself um, is, I think it was about plus four or five percent from last, from um, yeah, plus four percent from five years ago. But the post clearance stuff, so winning the ground ball get in general play. Uh, 2016, you won at 57. You won the game 57% of the times. Now, if you win that count, 69%, and that's a flip of 12%. So again, that that is going back to the question at hand. That's the biggest sort of flip mm. in stat correlation. Um, you know, winning correlation there is. And the second is crumb. So again, crumbing the ball off a marking contest slightly different. A ground ball get because a ground ball get it will include all crumbs um, plus other ways to sort of pick the ball off the ground. Uh, hard ball gets, um, contested possessions, things like that, they're all slowly becoming more important um, than they were five years ago and uncontested possessions going down. So, yeah, if you're if you're better at the chaos game um, and, you know, being able to sort of win the ball when it is in dispute, um, you're winning more often, whereas, yeah, back in the day, you probably had to rely more on better ball use. By back in the day, you mean 2016. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. Uh, let's whip through a couple more. Uh, we, we are running a little bit short of time, but... Commentators talk about a team's horrid goal kicking. How much has goal kicking percentage dropped? I know we've touched on this earlier in the year, but always good to get a refresher. Yeah, so well, again, 20, 2005, we're at 53%. This is all shots, uh, 53% in 2005. Uh, steadily dropped to 48% by 2010. It came back up to 50% in 2016. Uh, but yeah. the year since we've gone 49, 47, 46.4, 46.7 last year, up to 47.3. So we did have a steady drop, um, but it's come up slightly this year. With the set shot, and again, that's including all all misses. So that's that's your overall accuracy every time you take a shot at goal, goals, behinds and misses. Uh, again, you know, um, with the numbers for set shots, we only have those parameters going back to 2014. So for a set shot, we, we only recorded that you were completely missing from 2014 onwards. That's only dropped from 2014, the first year we did it, 53.7% accuracy um, to 52.2% this year. So clearly, yeah, the, the accuracy is not hasn't dropped a lot in set shots. And as I said, the data we don't have going back far enough to really make a comparison with Dunstall, Lockett's and Coleman's because they were only getting their goals and behinds recorded, not not all their misses. 
Um, but yeah, I think it goes exactly back to one of your points you raised before pressure factor and, you know, just being, being harder to score from inside 50 general play accuracy is going down just because you, it's, you're getting harder shots at goal. You're under more pressure when you do get the shots at goal. So, so if, if Lockett and Dunstall and going back all throughout football history, if, if we recorded all of their actual misses as we do now, would, would their numbers be similar to no, I wouldn't the key have forwards I, I of today? No, I think using, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but even straight goals behind accuracies, you know, dropped away from the 80s and 90s. And I don't, I, yeah, you're not seeing players kick 14 goals, three and 13 goals, you know, two across mm. games like they were back in the day. I think um, Bailey Fritch was, you know, I did a graphic on him last week and I think he was, he's kicked 16 three in the last six weeks or something. He was one of the most accurate, but it just sort of takes him that many weeks just to kick that many goals, but no, that they were definitely more accurate in the day. It's again, but when we talk about accuracy, we want to use missed shots as well. We don't want to just use goals and behinds because um, they're, they're actually more accurate kicks. Even if they do score a behind, we want to include yeah ones that fall short and go out on the full. Um, also sort of looking or comparing now to a few years ago, do players run like distance wise? Do they run as much as they did 10 years ago? Yeah, so that's something we'll, we'll unfortunately never know. So I think the GPSs have been on players' backs probably going back 10 years ago, but they were on um, only selected players' backs um, for quite a while um, and then probably slowly more and more players wear it. But I think it's only since 2017 that every player's been mandated to wear it. Um, but even though, even still, um, the data's sort of locked behind. I think Telstra, um, through their website and apps, they have access to it. And I know Channel 7 show a lot of it. Um, of t- just top fives in a game so they can get access to the top five performing players of a game, but that's it. So you can't get access to all 44 players' data and work out averages run and, and things like that. So unfortunately, we never know. It, it certainly looks like it, though. I, I do pay a lot of attention to the tracking data because I do sort of um, work a little bit for Telstra and Channel 7, just sort of trying to find um, highlights from it. And I am noticing younger names are becoming top five players. So players like Sam Walsh, Xavier Dersmo are coming straight in and becoming top five players um, in their clubs for distance covered per game. So I feel like it is an attribute that draft you know, recruiters are looking for in kids. But also as a kid, I think, you know, going through all the early development of Vic Metro and AIS and all the other sort of special programs they get access to, I think there's a big focus on you've got to be able to run now. It's not about being able to use your left and right foot or being brave in the air and things like that. You got to put it all together, but you got to be able to run. And it, it seems to be about, I think, again, don't know the exact number, but I think it's about 11 to 12 Ks is an, an average player runs per game. So you got to, yeah, be able to cover a bit of the field to make it these days. Interesting that um, they don't want the general public knowing everyone's running data. Um, it's just, yeah, well, it's, I imagine people just be getting abused for not running yeah, too far. Potentially, you're right. Yeah. So that's maybe why we don't uh, know. But I can guarantee you now they're running more now, now than they were in the Lockett and Dunstall days. Yeah, oh, correct. It's just how much. Yeah, exactly. As I said, I, you know, I would assume it's around 11 and a half, 12 Ks. It'd be interesting to know, was it ever down to six, seven? And, but it, I feel like it could have been higher in 13, 14. We were having 110 interchange moves per game as well, but we'll, we'll never know, unfortunately. Uh, similar kind of vibe, but does the average age of a list actually mean much when the difference between the top and bottom teams is something like 1.7 years? Yeah, probably not. And again, it's it's a small number. Is you know, 43, 44 players on the list. I think we've seen West Coast being in West Coast and Hawthorne in the last 10 years, sort of two older premiership sides. 
Bulldogs and Collingwood in their premiership years were two of the youngest. So it doesn't matter how, you know, there's no right or wrong way to do it. So probably across, you know, looking at list, there's not too much. But again, just breaking it down, going into a game, it certainly does matter. And you do hear a lot of the coaches at press conferences. Sometimes they, they have the numbers handy. They know they were two years younger on average that night compared to their opposition. So just looking at that. So if you're one year older on average than your opposition, you win 67% of the games, um, you know, and an average margin of 19 points per game you're winning by. If you're two years older, 71% win rate um, with 27 uh, point margin so that's going back to 2000 so um and just being the older side 59 percent. so um you know it stacks up age does matter uh, but you're probably right when you when you're trying to judge your 44 players on the list you're probably going to even out because every team has to take three draftees you yep. sort of got a rookie list so it's more the game day side than... out, but correct on a yeah. game day if you if you're taking a notice of average age um yeah the closer you get to one or two years higher on average the more yeah the more likely you are gonna maybe the cat should have won the flag then jake um all right last one before we we move on uh this is from damon on twitter why do some smothered kicks count as a kick but others don't uh yeah it's good question it's it's a good question and probably a good time to plug our uh our website championdata.com we do have faqs uh section and a glossary section uh, on that, which will have vision examples of exactly what I'm about to speak of. But yeah, it is one of the probably more, you know, common questions we get is, yeah, what counts as disposal and what doesn't it's, it's basically like, does it, does it take flight? So if it kicks smothered, you know, midair, you'll get the kick followed by a smother. If it's smothered directly off your toe, you know, someone's dived across Heath Shaw, Nick Rewalt style, there, there's no kick made there because it's, you sort of, the smother has killed the ball of being disposed of, but to make, yeah, as I said, head to the page. There's some good vision examples there. I know I'll give a shout out to Louis um, who works with us and a couple other guys have been working hard on this website, which I don't think 18 months ago, I don't think we had an FAQ page. So it's something new we've got. Um, but I think the basic answer is into that is does the handball or kick take flight before it was smothered for it to be counted as a disposal? Mm, championdata.com forward slash glossary forward slash AFL has a really good uh, list of terms and the FAQ page is also on that website as well. Uh, this is good. We should do this again sometime, uh, the Ask Champion Data. We always like it when you guys send in your questions for Christian and the team. Uh, so use the hashtag Ask Champion Data or, or uh, tweet us at footy tips uh, anytime throughout the year and we can probably sneak one or two in an episode if you guys are curious. Uh, we are running a bit over it. time. Sorry. Sorry, I might ban free kick questions next time. We'll yeah. How many we get? <laughs> <laughs> we might, might avoid the free kick questions. Um, we are running a little bit long on time, but we'll get to some justified hype or hyperbole questions, Jake. Uh, the segment where I'll say a statement, you tell me where the hype is, whether the hype is justified, or the uh, sentence is a hyperbole. All players should get a premiership medal if they play throughout the year. And I know that we've asked this earlier. I was about in to say, season, but this sounds familiar. Yeah, um, we're going to rehash it briefly. I'm trying to think what I said last time. I don't want to sound like a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'm, it doesn't really bother me that much if they do it. Like, I'm not really fussed either way. I guess the, the one thing that I would say I'm not hugely keen on is all everyone in the squad getting one that players that haven't even suited up at all for the senior team. That's where I'm kind of like, do we really want, you know, we talk about players like we're talking about Nathan Jones and we're talking about, Pavlich and Matthew Richardson and some of the greats of the game never winning a premiership, um, yet players that never actually played a game, they just happened to be on the on the list at that time, uh, won a, got a premiership medallion. Mm. So I don't know how far we want to go. 
I'm comfortable comfortable with it being the twenty two the twenty three that play um, and no more. And every year there's going to be hard luck stories. But what do you do? Go back. Can you imagine if they started doing it now? And then, well, what about Bob Murphy? Do you go back retrospectively and give every every team? I don't know. I think we keep it as is. It, we we always want to change stuff, and I'm not against changing things, but I think this is this is okay how it is. Christian. Max Gorn's third term was the best we've ever seen in a final. Uh, it was up there. Um, <laughs> Bailey Smith, Q4 against Brisbane. I don't know. I, I just, I find it funny. I, I find that question hard to answer. It was great. Um, it was a great quarter and it was freakish what he did. Um, you know, was Bailey Smith in a, in a one point game just as important? Um, you know, he had four score involvements, I think, as well as that goalie kick. But I, it, it was one of them, but I, it's hard to... I think it's hyperbole to say yes. That that is the most dominant quarter I've ever seen. How did it? I mean, we, we talked about AFL ratings points. How did that that rate? Well, that that's where it comes down. Oh yeah, ratings points says it was. <laughs> so yeah, it was <laughs> it was the best quarter we've. Uh, and again, rating points goes back 2011. So it was more rating points than um, Bailey Smith. So that takes into account yeah exactly what you're doing. You know, but then looking at another measure, we got rankings points, um, which isn't great to use per quarter. But it was it wasn't even the top 20 quarter this year just because of the game state. He, he did what he did, but because Melbourne won by so much and dominated the rest of the game, that that period by Max Gordon didn't really win in the game. As I think Bailey Smith was, yeah, the, the second or third best quarter of the year just because of, uh, a lot of what he did actually impacted the final result on the scoreboard. So, uh, yeah, ratings, yeah, clearly the best final we've seen um, in nine, ten years. We might next season perhaps go through ratings versus ranking points again because we did it uh, all the way back in season one, I believe. Uh, so if, if anyone needs a refresher, we might we might do that at some point next season. Uh, and last one before we wrap things up, Jake, the Bulldogs winning this year's grand final would be mm. a bigger and better effort than their one in 2016. I'm starting to think that it might be. And I know that might be a little bit of recency bias in that, but just factor in a couple of things here. So 2016, as great as it was, they were seventh that year. And that's, we only ever talk about they were seventh, but they had 15 wins. That's a good seventh. That's good enough to be some, that's good enough to be top four some years. So they weren't a traditional seventh best team that came and, and won the, won the, the flag. This year, they, they were top, Throughout the throughout the home and away season, but they fell away when it mattered. They had they had a massive fall away. As I said before, many many people, including myself, expected that they could lose to the Bombers in the first week. Well, they they beat them. They backed it up and they backed it up again. So and then you factor in the fact that they've played in I think five different. They will have played in five different states in five different games. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's unbelievable. I think if they if they do it, I think it's better. I think it's a better achievement, especially the fact that they lost Josh Bruce, who isn't their best player, but he might just be their most important player structurally. Yeah, I'll offer a counterpoint, perhaps that in 2016 they travelled almost as much. They went to Perth and they beat the Eagles in the first week, uh, which yeah. many didn't expect them to do. They came and they beat. Hawthorne at the MCG, and this is after Hawthorne had won three flags in a row. They were in heavy Melbourne. underdogs again. Yeah, uh, and then the preliminary final was against the Giants, and the Giants yeah. were were a mighty impressive team, and that was an almighty contest. And even just winning that, I think people thought it was going to be good enough because the Swans that year were a juggernaut. They were excellent in 2016. 
And then they won that. I think, um, I think, and, and given the fact that the dogs were also first or second for most of this season, it, no, like the fact that they ended up finishing fifth was their own fault. So it's, they've been one of the best two sides all year. And, and mm. the fact that they're in the, in the grand final hasn't really shocked most people. If you take out the, the last sort of month yeah, the of difference that season. Is so. They entered this year's finals campaign in horrible form. They entered the 2016 one getting well, week with off that buy and yeah. getting five players back. So it was the complete opposite. It light the stars aligned for them. I mean, they had to do it. It was, it was hard, yeah. but this year it was almost like, gee, they could go out. We, as we said, we were talking about they, they could go out first week. But we also Look, expect more of an older group now as well. Uh, and a yeah, more experienced we do. group. And I think the 2016, the, the, the breakthrough, the, the drought, I just think the whole, uh, the whole sort of situation that that was, it makes it well. A, if they do, it, we'll have to ask. We'll have to ask Dunkley and see what he thinks. Yeah, I Josh mean, he Dunkley. Played, he will have played in both. So uh, look, we're looking to get him way, on the pod. Either way, they'll be the only team to have, to do it. They'll do it twice from outside the top top four, which is incredible because we always say it's so difficult to do, and um, they will have done it twice. So I think either way, both of them are ridiculously good efforts. Even if they even if they don't win the grand final, I think yeah. it's an amazing effort to get there considering where they were a month ago. Absolutely. Uh, guys, thanks for joining us again. As we said at the top, we've got uh, the Brownlow special coming at some time on Thursday. We'll, uh, we'll have a chat and coordinate when we're going to do that. Uh, but listen in if you want some good tips because Jake uh, admitted something to me this week uh, and it shocked me. And it's that if he was given the choice of watching either just the grand final or just the Brownlow, he would choose the Brownlow. So, you know, you know, you're in good hands and Christian's face says it all. <laughs> uh, so if you want some, uh, some interesting insights into the Brownlow medal and the count and all that, um, yeah, tune in Thursday. We'll have it. Uh, Christian, thanks. Thanks for, for that. Now I'm going to get more criticism on my, on the socials. <laughs> uh, Christian, thanks for the Ask Champion data stuff. That was really good. Uh, we will preview the grand final next week in a bit more detail. Jake, prepare to get some uh, Twitter feedback. And to everyone Always at home, fun. we will speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.